Esther is just before the book of Job, which is just before Psalms. Uh, so if you're looking uh, for where that is, it's find the Psalms, which is about halfway through, and work your way back. Uh, this morning we are going to look at Esther chapter 1, the whole of chapter 1, uh, as a kind of introduction to the uh, book as a whole. So let's uh, read Esther uh, chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, or Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the hearts of the king were merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbunha, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring King Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirz, Marsena, and Murkan, the seven princesses of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat in the kingdom. According to the law, what was to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of the king Asuras, Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Munkan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal permission to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdoms, for it's vast, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord, difficult as it may be to pronounce sometimes, does stand forever. We're beginning today a series through Esther and Ruth. What do we tend to think of when we consider Esther and Ruth, if we tend to consider it at all? I'm not sure uh, many of us have even taken the time uh, to look at these two books, unless you happen to have been in a women's Bible study, because that's where we tend to relegate these two books, right? Oh, the women are going to study Ruth and Esther because they're women, and these are women books of the Bible. But as we come to Esther, I think we see something that we can all readily and easily identify with. Something that is of great value for all of us. Have you ever felt like you didn't fit in with the world around you? Have you ever felt like the values of this world were far removed from your own values? Have you ever felt like there's too much emphasis placed on things that we can buy? Have you ever been confused about what we show that we value as a society? Uh, teachers make pennies while sports stars make millions upon millions. Have you ever felt like government has lost touch with reality? That they're making laws that control every last part of your life, and yet they're having very little impact of any real sort. Have you ever felt like you were in exile in a strange land? This is the world of Esther. This is the world of the time that it was written. Israel had been taken into exile into Persia. Specifically, Judah. And what do we know about Judah in exile? We know that they were not like those around them, that their overlords were not to be trusted. That the Persians had all the power, that the Jews had none of the power. We even know by this point, most of the Jews, I think if not all, were Jews who were born in Persia. Exiled from their homeland. Why should they continue to live a lifestyle different from those around them? Why should they not just give in to the demands of the empire to be assimilated, to become invisible? 
And the only answer left to them is that God is still in control. God, who had entered into relationship with them, he still had power over their lives. But the question then comes, becomes before us, why should we still study Esther today? We don't necessarily face persecution based on our nationality, do we? We don't necessarily face persecution based on our faith, do we? There are many places around the world where this is currently happening, and I think it's happening here as well and will be happening more and more. We may be citizens of the United States of America, but we are subjects of a different king. We have loyalties, we have allegiances different from those around us. And yet, just like Israel in exile, we still struggle with the notion of an invisible, unseen God. We look at the Bible and we see, look at Moses and the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea. And we see these big things. We look at Jericho and the trumpets and the falling of the wall. And that's a, a visible God. We look at the New Testament of Jesus being raised from the dead. And we go, we don't see God like that today. He appears to be invisible to us. And we may struggle with keeping the faith in a confusing world. The reality is this, that the Jews of the time, these Jews in exile, faced many temptations. The power and the might of the Persian Empire was terrible and great. Not only were they terrible and great, but they were wealthy beyond all measure. And they saw its absolute control of the world. They saw its wealth. Why not just give in? And, and of all empires to give into, the Persian Empire was an easy one to give into. They came in and said, okay, hey, look. You were in control over here. We'll give you some authority over here. They, were, they wanted you to be assimilated into their group. They made it as easy as possible. But we also know that this is 50 years after the Cyrus's edict. So all the really hardcore Jews, they'd already returned to Jerusalem. Cyrus had already let them go. 50 years had passed since then. The ones who are left, shouldn't they just cave in? Coexistence would be so much easier than living a distinct lifestyle. So one temptation is to give in. The other was to despair. How are we to stand in the face of this empire? How can we hope to be faithful in a hostile environment? Esther, I believe, gives us two antidotes to this type of despair. The first, I believe, to be humor. If you listened as I read chapter one, and we're going to look at this in more depth, it really is kind of funny. There's humor here. And empires tend not to have a sense of humor about themselves. The second is this. Esther shows us that even when we don't see God working, God is working. So as we come to this text this morning, I want to see three things. First, we're going to see the empire of Ahasuerus. 
Second, we're going to see the empire in trouble. And third and finally, my most favorite point ever in a sermon, the empire strikes back. Yeah. Grumble, grumble. At least my daughter's got it. The only one they'll ever remember. Hey, I remember when you had that point. Okay, anyway. The book begins by introducing us to the empire of Ahasuerus. And we, we should take note from the very get-go that it's not a small empire. Stretching from India to Ethiopia, 127 27 provinces. And I'm not going to go through this again. I read it for you once. But if you'll notice, not only was it vast, it was wealthy. They had couches of gold and silver. Uh, they had this very rare purple dye that they was made into uh, these hangings and everything else. They had mosaic pavement and all these other things, mother of pearl, precious stones. It was a wealthy, a ridiculous wealthy place. Ahasuerus, the emperor, is a picture of power and wealth. And yet we see, even in chapter 1 here, that both are squandered on his own appetites. He used his money wastefully. Even his laws were wasteful. There is a decree that every man should drink according to his own desire. And no, no, no person should be under compulsion. There was an actual law on the books. When he says this here, that this should be true. He regulated the way in which they were to drink. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. That was Prop 78. Right? It was a law. It's silly. It's meant to be silly. You're allowed to laugh. He strove and strove to show his power, show his authority, show his wealth, but he really lacked any real kind of significance it, it's so sad it's funny and I think we're really meant to chuckle at his folly we're going to look at this more well let's not get the cat before the horse what are we to see here about this Esther reminds us that we're not to take the power of this world too seriously sometimes we have to look at the world and we just have to laugh Sometimes we have to look at our own hearts and the things that we value and the things that we desire and we just have to laugh. You here, today you may go home and you may turn on the TV and you may turn to some a football game and there is literally quarterbacks in the NFL getting paid 30 plus million dollars to throw a ball. That's one person on a team. That is insane if you really begin to think about it. It's insane where we put our value in this world. I would love to know the number if you added up all the salaries just between basketball, football, and baseball to know how much money we're paying to individuals to literally throw a ball. My son throws a ball. In the front yard, I really think that you should pay him millions of dollars for it. It's laughable, right? How much do celebrities get paid? For 
I think I, I saw something. This has just come out the top of my head. I may be wrong. There's some TV show where each actor gets paid a million dollars an episode for a 30-minute episode. A million dollars for a 30-minute TV show each time. They usually do about 24 of those a, a year. They're getting paid $24 million a year each. It's insanity. How much money do we throw into the cars we drive? <clears throat> the houses we buy, the toys we have. The empire of materialism takes itself very seriously. And we must learn to laugh at the empire, even to laugh at ourselves. This is the reality. The emperor's clothes are very expensive, but they're transparent. You know that story, right? The emperor's new clothes. He's going around, look at my new clothes, and they're nothing there at all. It's empty, it's frivolous. But the empire of Ahasuerus, it's a snag. And the karma in the form of Queen Vashti. We see the emperor had been in high spirit. He'd been drinking on about seven days, so he was going on a real good bender, feeling real good about himself. All his uh, royal friends were there. And so he sends for his wife, hey, uh, seven eunuchs. He sends seven eunuchs to go get his one wife and says, hey, go get my wife. Tell her to come in her crown. Uh, we're gonna, I want to show her off. I want all the nobles to see her in her beauty. He summoned her, in essence, to show her off before a group of drunk men. That's what he did. He summoned her as a doll or an object. She existed merely for his pleasure. In essence, he was her trophy wife. Let me parade her out here for all to see. But instead of the beautiful wife of the, of the king being seen, of the emperor being seen, the empire faced a big trouble. The queen refused to come. A mere woman stood up and said, no. What was to be done? The whole world's falling apart. Cats and dogs playing together. We must call a royal conference. Let me get all my smartest people together. Let's talk about this terrible, terrible thing. The end of the empire is the end of the world as we know it, right? The story's kind of being set up here, but something seems to be missing. We'll see in a second what, what happens as a result of this. But so far in Esther, we really haven't heard about God or even the people of God, really. Isn't this a book of the Bible? Isn't the Bible about God? Where is God in all of this? And we have to be reminded, even as we go through the story, that just because we don't see God working doesn't mean God isn't working. He is the unseen director of all of history, arranging all things for the good of his people. And only in hindsight can we see all that the king, that our king, our God, is doing. God's plan working for his people. He knows that the rest of the story, or excuse me, we know that the rest of the story hasn't been told yet. And so we remain faithful. And we're going to see here in a moment how contrary, specifically contrary, uh, this kingdom is to the kingdom of God. But we continue now in our story. 
The Empire will not sit quietly. When you blow up its Death Star, it'll strike back. How would the Empire respond to this most dangerous of situations? We're going to make a law, and that law is going to put that pesky woman in her place. I'm being facetious, all you women know that. I'm being... What's, what's the word? Hyperbolous? Hyperbole? She would be kicked out of her position. And not only that, we're going to tell all women, you must obey your husbands. Okay. We'll see how that works out for you. And if you don't obey your husbands, he can kick you out. Kick you to the curb. Even in this, we find humor. Something had happened that had fronted the the sensibilities of the king. So in response to this, let's make sure everybody knows about it. We're going to write a whole law about this. So if just in case anybody didn't hear, we're going to write it in their own language about how the king couldn't even control his own wife. Everybody was going to know it's really a smart move, right? Real smart, guys. They didn't think this through. He's going to make sure that everyone knows about his own impotence when it comes to ruling his own house. He made sure that he would be a laughingstock. And we could ask this, what did the queen really achieve? And at the best, all we can say she really achieved is that everyone knew now that the kingdom, the empire, could be challenged. She lost her power and position, but it was really kind of empty. The law becomes a fig leaf covering up the kings and the advisors. She becomes the model of how you don't get things done. As we'll continue in Esther, Esther would have to be much more subtle and daring in dealing with the empire, but resistance is possible. Assimilation is not inevitable. And yet this lesson is lost on the empire as a whole. Consider the law here. Verse 22. Or 21. Where is it? 20. When, When the When the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it was vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now, I don't know if you're a man or you're married, but if you came into your household and said, all right, there's a law now, and this is the way it's going to be, how would your wife respond? The wives are chuckling. (laughs) The men may not be, but the wives are chuckling. There's no real way to enforce this law, is there? There's no real way to enforce this law. And the real question is this. Was the empire really threatened by this one woman's act? I think at the end of the day, the opposite effect of this law would come into being. Instead of securing him a place of authority, it made him a joke. It showed him to be a terrible politician. And this is the world that the people of God find themselves in. But here's the real funny thing. This is the world we still find ourselves in today. I think if we read Esther and we look at the empire of Persia here, We don't see that many differences between us and them. The reins of power, on the whole, are still in the hands of the incompetent. 
But here is the hope I leave you with. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Persia. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the United States or Germany or England or Russia or anywhere. The Lord is a strong king. Yet his decrees cannot be challenged or repelled. He governs all things and we must and he must be obeyed. His laws, however, are beneficial to all. But not only this, he has prepared a banquet for his subjects. The wedding supper of the lamb. And he calls his bride in as well. Bride, come to me. But he doesn't call to expose her. He, expo- he calls her to lavish grace and mercy on her. Who would refuse such a wonderful invitation? Knowing what Christ has done for his bride. Because Christ doesn't call a bride who is pretty. Christ doesn't call a bride in all her beauty. Christ comes for a bride who is completely unattractive. Dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions. And Christ gives himself for his bride, a ransom for the ungodly. But even after he does this, he comes and he gives a very similar and yet all too different decree. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. And hear this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a similar decree, isn't it? Women, submit to your husbands. But it doesn't say, or else, and if you don't, kick her to the curb. It doesn't say that. It says, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The one who came to the church in its sin and transgression and gave himself up for her as a ransom for the ungodly. On a daily basis, God calls us men to die to ourselves for our wives. And so I said here, we don't see necessarily God here mentioned in chapter 1 of Esther, and yet we see all the ways in which this world is not God. And thanks be to God for that. Men, you don't use your wives for yourselves. You don't use them to your own ends, but you give yourself up for them, gently leading them. So we're kind of left with this question as we consider this Persian empire. Who is your king? Who is your king? I think another way I can ask this is, who are you looking to for hope? We're a 
about a week away from election, right? And that's about much as I'm going to say about it. But who are you looking to for hope? Who are you hanging your hat on and saying, if this doesn't happen, what's going to happen to me? To whom is your heart committed? The empire wants to make us its loyal subjects. And yet our hope is not in this world. We're to flee from this kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are to learn to laugh at its emptiness. We are to come to Christ by faith. To rest in his provision of forgiveness. Here's the reality. I began by telling you that Israel was in exile. Judah was in exile. But let me encourage you by saying this. You're in exile. This is not your home. But exile isn't forever. Christ is coming. We are to faithfully continue to live as if this world is not our home. We are to come by faith and rest in Christ's provision for his people. Thanking him for the gift of himself for us on the cross and remembering that this world is not our home. Christ is coming. And when he comes, we will enter into his banquet as his bride, and he will lavish his love and his care upon us. Who is your king? Where is your hope? Is your hope in the empire of this world, in the governments, in the principalities? Or is your hope in Jesus Christ? I'll tell you this, with the one, there's a lot of despair, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of hopelessness. With the other, there's a wonderful, beautiful certainty of the outcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word that it is indeed breathed out by God, by your spirit. And we're thankful for the truthfulness, truthfulness it brings to our lives. Lord, as we begin our study of Esther and into Ruth, would you bless us with the riches we find therein? Would you strengthen us even as we see the king, the true king? And would we find security in his kingdom? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.